The title of this morning's message is God is a Just Judge. God is a Just Judge. And the title happens to also be Scripture, Psalm 711. God is a Just Judge. And God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and he makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. I want to focus in on the first portion. I would say it's verse 1a. God is a just judge and offer that to you as a gift. A gift from God that God has given us. That we might hold fast to that reality every day of our life. That we might hold fast to that reality in the good times and in the bad. That we might hold fast to that reality when there are men and women that we love who are under the judgment of God in life, and even in death. That we would hold fast to that reality that God is a just judge when there are Christians, not under judgment, but under chastening in God's fatherly work as God delivers chastening to His children to perfect their faith, to sanctify them. Let us always hold fast to God as a just judge. God is just. That which He does is right always. That which God is, is right always. That which God commands, is right always. And so God is just. He is holy. He is right. He is good. That is our foundational conviction for our Christian faith. And when our minds tempt us, when our sin tempts us to think God unjust, know that the injustice is in you. The injustice is in you. And so we praise our just judge. We praise our just God and give Him all the glory. Yesterday, we had the privilege of going forth and ministering the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ in our community in downtown Portland on Martin Luther King Boulevard at the Planned Parenthood. And God ordained that a man would come forth from the Planned Parenthood and engage us with mocking, engage us with a challenge to the faith. And the man quickly revealed that he was an apostate. He had scripture memorized. He knew Christian terminology He knew and said, oh, he likes apologetics, only he was an apologist for the devil. He was an apologist for unbelief. He was defending not the faith, but defending unbelief and a rejection of the one true God. I quickly asked him at the beginning of our conversation, could you be wrong about everything that you know? And he said, yes. And I thanked him for his honesty. And he went on to make statements of things that he knows. (laughs) Even though he could be wrong about everything that he knows. And I explained to him that he is correct in his answer. That he could be wrong about everything that he knows. Because in order to know anything, you would have to know everything. Because if you don't know everything, that which you don't know could disprove what you think 
you know. Did you follow me there? If you don't know everything, that which you are convinced that you know could actually be wrong because the greater body of knowledge that's out there could yet disprove what you think you know. So unless you know everything or you know the God who knows everything, you can actually know nothing. Now, I initially left him with the question, could you be wrong about everything you know? And he readily asserted, yes, he could. And then he tried to flip it around to say, and so could you. To which I said, no, I cannot. And you must say also, no, you cannot be wrong about everything that you know. Why? Because you know the God who knows everything. And he has revealed in Holy Scripture some of that knowledge. And so you can be certain about that which God has revealed. And we have a revelatory epistemology. We know truth because God has revealed truth. And then I asked him, for instance, would you say that murder is wrong? And forgive me, Joe, you're going to become part of this sermon. Because Joe was standing to my left. I said, so let's, let's make it real here. If I kill Joe, is that right or wrong? Is it, is it murder? And he paused for a minute and, and he said, well, that, that depends. Well, it depends on what? Whether or not you're going to eat him. And so if we kill Joe, if we make sloppy Joes out of Joe, it's all about the sauce, then it's okay. As long as we have the secret sauce. But if we just kill Joe and leave him lay, then, then that's wrong. I guess that's a misappropriation of resources. Good meat. So all we are is meat. And apparently in his worldview, meat is not murder. He had not become a vegetarian like many of the North Portlanders are. And I said, well, you have already told me that you could be wrong about everything that you know, and therefore you know nothing, so you have no ground to stand on to say it's okay to murder people or kill people as long as you eat them. That's nonsense. That's absurd. I said, let me ask you another question. Is child molestation wrong? I'm trying to find some place where he will uh, reflect a commitment to God's truth. And ultimately, he, he said that that too is okay. And the way he said it, I wasn't convinced that he actually believes it. And I told him so. And I again pointed out that his rejection of the one true God, the God of truth, has left him with absurdity, has left him with nonsense and foolishness and wickedness. And then I, I went a step further and I asked about rape. Is rape wrong? And he paused there more than with the other two. And yet it would seem that rape is also a matter of preference. And at that point, we assured him that his rejection of God has defiled not only his soul, but his conscience and his mind. And he has descended into absurdity. And we assured him really that you don't really believe these things. I don't believe that you really believe these assertions. And again, back to the, where we started, having rejected the God of truth, you have no ground to stand on to make even these moral, wacky, wicked moral assertions that this is right or wrong. You stand firmly on thin air making these assertions of right and wrong, again, as wacky and wicked as they were. As we continued to talk to him, it became clear that he was miserable in his sin. That his sin had found him out as we had, throughout the conversation, been interjecting Scripture. 
and that the wage of sin is death. It became clear that he was semi-suicidal. Even as he was boasting his sin and his love of his sin and his pleasure in his sin, his sin is finding him out. And hear me, whether we're reasoning from the reality that God is a just judge, he is the lawgiver, he defines truth, he alone defines truth, and without the God of truth, without the God of justice, you have no justice, you have no morality, you have no right and wrong, you only have personal preference or societal preference, or worse, wacky wickedness, he was humbled. And by the end of our conversation, praise God, he was thanking us. And when he walked away, before he walked away, I should say, before he walked away, he asked, what church are you from? What's your name again? Yeah, I might look you up sometime. And he thanked us. And he walked away with a completely different disposition than that which he started. And I praise God for that. His truth prevailed. God is a just judge. Now this man, once a professing Christian who said he went on missions trips, is denying the one true God, denying his Christ, denying the scriptures, and yet the truth is still written on his heart. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And so we apply that word. We unleash that word. We stand by that truth, for there is no other. The problem of evil is a problem that has stumbled philosophically or in the realm of apologetics has stumbled many Christians. I've heard many Christians say things that in no way uphold the truth of Scripture when they're pressed with the problem of evil. When September 11th took place and the Twin Towers fell, I heard a plethora of famous preachers and Christian leaders say terrible things. And unfortunately, things like God was bound by his gentlemanly nature to allow sinners to do this, and God didn't want this, and God had nothing to do with this. You know, these kinds of statements were made. Now, God is not a gentleman. God is holy, and God is sovereign. And when evil things like terrorists with box cutters, hijacking planes takes place and people die, whether it's in a field in Pennsylvania or whether it's in the the fifth of the Pentagon that burned that day or the Twin Towers and the horror of seeing people jump out of those Twin Towers trying to save themselves in some futile attempt to escape the flames that were rising. When that is pressed upon men's minds, they say, where is God in this? And God is omnipresent. He's right there. God is omnipotent. He's right there. And for those who were born again from above, those who were in Christ, who went to work that day in the Twin Towers, that was their best day. They went to glory. And God was just and even loving in bringing home those whom Christ purchased with his own blood who went to work in the Twin Towers that day or who got on the plane with Mr. Beamer that day and crashed in that field in Pennsylvania instead of the White House or who went to work that day in service to our country in the Pentagon 
and never came home. If they were in Christ, that was their best day. Their father brought them home, and they don't regret that day. They're not in heaven wishing they would not have gone to work in the Twin Towers, wishing they had been in the other four-fifths of the Pentagon when that one-fifth was struck, or wishing they had not been on that plane with Todd Beamer and had never heard, let's roll. No, they're in glory, every tear wiped away. They're in the presence of he who has loved them from eternity past and will love them in eternity future forever and ever and ever. God is just and he is loving. And we can never allow the events of this world to stumble us in that. This man outside of the three moral issues I brought of murder and molestation and rape, he, he went to the bigger picture and he said, well, you know, God created Adam. You know, why did he allow the fall in the first place? Why did he allow sin? You know, what kind of God is that? And if you haven't thought through these things biblically, you may well stumble in your faith, not just fail to be a biblical apologist, fail to be a biblical messenger, but stumble in your faith. And there are many kids, many young people, and many seemingly mature Christians who, when pressed with these atheistic arguments, stumble, fall, even go apostate and join the very apostate that was giving this argument. And they become apologists for these atheistic arguments themselves. In fact, September 11th led to many going apostate because they thought, wow, as they saw this on TV, it was too visceral, it was too gruesome to watch people flinging themselves out of the Twin Towers trying to survive this fiery inferno rising up. It was too real. It wasn't some fictional movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger didn't rush in to save them. Spider-Man didn't swoop in on a web. Superman didn't fly down with his super cool breath. No, they died in front of us all. It was nightmarish. And their faith could not overcome that. Because ultimately their faith was not in the God of Scripture. They were professing Christians, professing believers, but they had never truly grasped a hold of the one true God by grace alone, through faith alone, in the power of the Spirit. And so that horror before their eyes led them to deny God and leave the church. There was an actual measured reduction in church attendance, directly related to September 11th. Praise God in His grace, others came to repentance and faith through that experience through their world being shaken. So I want to equip you for life. I want to equip you for tragedy. I want to equip you for the next Twin Tower experience. And I actually literally believe there's going to be another Twin Tower experience. Our southern border has been wide open now for two years. Millions and millions of people have come across. If Things do not change in our nation and in the world. Tragedy is coming. And this little COVID thing we had, this little Fauci China virus thing, nothing, nothing compared to what can come, what they can actively, willfully, deliberately unleash on us or what God in his judgment can and will unleash 
on mankind. God is a just judge. Hold fast to that reality. God is love. Hold fast to that reality. And let us, by the grace of God, biblically deal with the problem of evil. Evil in the devil, evil in mankind, evil that devastated the first family as Cain slew Abel. Evil that resulted in Adam and Eve's first son murdering their second son. Evil that has affected every family since Adam and Eve. And evil as a concept. Dr. Greg Bonson is preeminently able to show us how to deal with the problem of evil. We live in Portland, Oregon. Portland boasts that it is the most atheist city in America. If you obey the Great Commission at all in the Portland area, you will be engaging atheists and their atheistic arguments against God. If you go on the internet, you will be engaging atheistic arguments of God. If you dare watch, which I don't recommend, but, but any of the late night shows, you're going to be dealing with atheists who rail against God. If, if you read any of the modern scientific literature, you're going to be dealing with atheists that rail against God. If you, if you go to the bestseller book table at Barnes & Noble or any other bookstore, you're going to be dealing with atheists that rail against God with their atheistic arguments. If you go to university or dare send your children there, you're going to be dealing with atheists that rail against God with their atheistic arguments, and the problem of evil is chief amongst their arguments. In reality, the problem of evil is actually the atheist problem, not our problem, not the Bible-believing Christian's problem. Every time an atheist brings up the problem of evil, he or she is proving the truth of Romans 1.18-32, that they are suppressing the knowledge of God. Most of us have experienced some heart-wrenching pain or loss, like the disability, dismemberment, or death of a friend or family member. Inside and outside of our own personal circle of friends and family, we know of terrible injustices, horrific child abuse, and difficult birth defects. These real circumstances all present an emotional problem with evil and suffering. And hear me, when evil is shoved in your face on the street, or by a relative, or by a friend, or by a professor, it can put you on your heels. And so I want you to be strong and ready for the day of battle in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own faith, to protect your own soul so the helmet of salvation will be fixed on your head and the the shield of faith on your arm. But I also want you to have the sword of the Spirit ready to wield. And hear me, if you can remember nothing else of this sermon, remember this, God is a just judge. God is a just judge, period. That is the truth. And you, whoever you are, professor, friend, family member, stranger on the street outside of Planned Parenthood, you are an unjust judge making unjust judgments. For man's heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9. So God is a just judge. Jeremiah 17.9. Man is deceitful and wicked. So who do we trust? We trust God. We hold fast to God. And by the way, the man who was trying to put God on 
the judgment seat, and to judge God. You know, why did God, is, is God good if God allowed evil? How is that good? Well, that man went on to justify eating Joe, molesting children, and raping women. So is he qualified to put God in the judgment seat? No, I think not. I think not. He revealed the reality of Scripture, that man is deceitful and wicked, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1, 18 and following says. The Scottish 18th century skeptic David Hume said this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? And so, if he could prevent evil, but he's not able, or excuse me, he's willing to prevent it. He's willing to prevent evil, but he's not able. He's not God. He's impotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Well, then he's malevolent, he says. Evil. This is the skeptic David Hume. And then he goes on to say, is he both able and willing? Well, then where did evil come from? That is a philosophical declaration of the problem of evil. Dr. Greg Bonson addressed this logical problem in a series of two lectures. I'm going to summarize them I have before. I'll do it again today. He formulates the problem as consisting of the following three premises. One, God is completely good. And I point to Psalm 711, God is a just judge. You can stop with just, God is just, but he is a just judge. God is completely good, first premise. Second, God is completely powerful. So he's all good, he's all powerful. Third, evil exists. Evil happens. So what do we do with this? How do we work this out biblically? The professing atheist argument is that these three statements are logical impossibilities. In other words, God can't be completely good and completely powerful if evil exists. That's logically impossible. And if we argue that, what are we saying? That our mind ultimately is the arbiter of truth. Because as far as we can comprehend, that's logically impossible. Now, for us to declare our minds as the arbiter of truth, we would have to know all truth. We would have to be God. And thus, on its face, we reject that. And we go back to that question. And I encourage you, remember that question. It's very useful. Could you be wrong about everything you know? Typically, they'll say yes. And then you can agree with them. You're right. You could because you've rejected the God who knows everything. You've rejected God's revelation. And so ultimately, you have no justification for anything you claim to know. And if we keep conversing, you're going to make all sorts of knowledge statements, but you've already confessed that you have no foundation for any of them. And so they come with their logic, they come with their reasoning, and they want to put God on the judgment seat. The first two statements, God is completely good, God is completely powerful, present no conflict in logic. It's when the third statement is added that the apparent problem arises. Dr. Bosson notes, quote, Accordingly, it is crucial to the unbeliever's case against Christianity to be in a position to assert that there is evil in the world, to point to something 
and to have the right to evaluate it as an instance of evil. If it should be the case that nothing evil exists or ever happens, that is, what people initially believe to be evil cannot reasonably be deemed evil, then there is nothing inconsistent with Christian theology which requires an answer. In other words, if their perception of evil is false, and actually there's no evil at all. And I've met some of those people. I've met some Eastern philosophy types who ultimately say there is no evil. It's all good. It's all Brahma. It's all going to work out. It's all fake. It's not real. But if there is no actual evil, then there is no conflict here. Of course, we know there is actual evil. But outside of the God of revelation, the God of Scripture, the only God there is, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who is just, the God who defines good and evil, there ultimately is only conflicting opinion because one man says this is evil, another man says no, that's good, and vice versa all over the face of the earth. And so outside of God, there actually is no evil. There is no evil. In a world that's created by chance, with life created by accident, where do you get evil? Evil is a biblical construct Evil is defined by God, is that which is contrary to God and contrary to God's commands. Where do you get evil without God? I'm glad you brought up evil. If someone brings up evil, some philosopher on the street, some philosopher who's a professor, some philosopher who's a friend, an apostate, whatever, wants to bring up evil and throw it in your face. Oh, Christian, what about the problem of evil? All the evil in the world. What about evil priests? Oh, yes, they are evil. That's what you say. Yes, they're more evil than you can possibly comprehend as a non-believer. What the priests have done and have made themselves infamous for, oh, that's just the beginning of their evil. All the children they baptize, unless they repent of their Catholicism and come to the one true God through faith alone in Jesus Christ, they're all perishing and in hell. So now they're the enemy of all children, every Catholic child. You can't begin to comprehend the evil of the Catholic priest, but where do you get this concept of evil, O oh non-believer, in a cosmos created by accident, where life is an accident, where human beings are just an evolved species that will soon be snuffed out, no doubt, by some strain asteroid or, or some disease yet to be created in a lab or being created in a lab right now, as I heard there working on some more COVID gain-of-function virus types. To what end? Who knows? Secondly, what does the unbeliever mean by good? Or by what standard does the unbeliever determine what counts as good so that evil is accordingly defined or identified? What are the presuppositions in terms of which the unbeliever makes any moral judgments whatsoever? What philosophy or value of morality can the unbeliever offer which will render it meaningful to condemn some atrocity as objectively evil? The moral indignation which is expressed by unbelievers when they encounter the wicked things which transpire in this world does not comport with the theories of ethics which unbelievers espouse. Theories which can prove to be arbitrary or subjective or merely utilitarian or relativistic in character. On the unbeliever's worldview, there is no good reason for saying that anything is evil in nature, but only by personal choice or feeling. I don't like that. In other words, you look at the box cutter wielding 
Islamic terrorist. And you say, that's evil. Look what they did to those twin towers and all the people therein. That's evil. What do the terrorists say? Well, I'll tell you what they say, because I've met their friends on the streets of Portland. I've met their friends working in the kiosks of Lloyd Center Mall in downtown Portland and Washington Square. They're Muslim friends. And they say, well, you know, it's necessary. On one level, I certainly emotionally, as a fellow human being, I, I don't like it. On one level, these Muslim, rational, thinking, moralistic men and women argue. But it's necessary for the good of the whole so that they can come beneath Islam. And that will benefit all of humanity. So from their worldview, because to them the Quran is truth, it's necessary. The problem is the Quran is a lie. Well, how do you know that? How can you make that judgment, Pastor Chuck? How can we make that judgment? Why do we say the Bible's true, the Quran's a lie? Because the Bible is true. And the Quran only claims to be a book of truth because it borrows from the truth of Scripture. It borrows from the credibility of Scripture. It says, we are the people of the book. We, we're the people of Scripture. And we have another revelation. Oh, yes, the prophet Moses. Oh, yes, the prophet Jesus. Oh, yes, the Old Testament. Oh, yes, the New Testament. And we have another testament. It's called the Quran. And the prophet Muhammad gave it. And they claim that Moses in Deuteronomy was talking about the prophet Muhammad coming. And they have another prophecy. Of course, their prophecy, their book, their Quran, their Hadith, contradicts the one true God. They have a different God. A God who is not one and yet three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God who did not come in the likeness of men, suffer and die for sinners, and rise again on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death. Their God is not the God of Scripture, not the God who created the heavens and the earth, not the God who is one and three, and not the God who took upon flesh in the person of Jesus the Christ was pierced for our iniquities, pronounced to tell us die, it is finished, died and rose again as the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Thus, it's a lie, just like Mormonism is a lie. Well, you say you have a revelationary epistemology that, you, that your book is the book. What about the Mormon book? Yeah, they, they, they claim to have a revelation. Well, yes, again, it's a different God and it's a different gospel. And therefore we reject it outright. It's inconsistent with the truth. And so we can argue consistently all day long with atheists, with agnostics, with Mormons, with Muslims. We can argue consistently all day long, beginning with the one true God, the God of all truth and his holy revelation of holy Scripture. Bonson goes on to say, I'm encouraged when I see unbelievers getting very indignant with some evil action as a matter of principle. Such indignation requires recourse to the absolute, unchanging, and good character of God in order to make it make philosophical sense. The expression of moral indignation is but personal evidence that unbelievers know this God in their heart of hearts. Now, most men do not descend as far into absurdity as the man did outside of Planned Parenthood yesterday. They don't justify murder and molestation and rape. Most don't. Some do. Most will agree with the revelation that's on their heart. They're, they're not so hardened 
They haven't suppressed the natural revelation. They haven't suppressed their God-given conscience that murder is wrong, that harming children is wrong, that harming women is wrong. And so they'll agree with the truth, but they have no foundation upon which to justify those moral convictions. Why is murder wrong? Why is making sloppy Joes out of beef good, but making sloppy Joe out of Joe wrong? Because Joe is created in the image of God with an eternal soul. Joe is a man, and he has a precious life to live for God's glory. Why is eating chicken okay and children not? Because children are created in the image of God, and they have eternal souls, and their lives are to be lived out for the glory of God. But without God, you can't objectively argue those realities. It's just preference. And there have been people groups around the world who have preferred to eat other people. That was their moral standard. As long as they were, you know, from a different tribe, it was fine. You don't want to eat your own people. I mean, unless they irritate you perhaps on a bad day, then you might do so. And you think, cannibalism, oh, that, that's shocking. Well, it's, no, it's normal. It's human nature. Murder is human nature. And if we are just animals, right, then who's to argue all this morality? Where do you get all this stuff from? Why is rape wrong? Might makes right. The the survival of the fittest. If a man is, he's the fittest, should he not have many prodigies? Shouldn't he not have many offspring? On what evolutionary foundation could you argue against that? You can't. But upon the word of God, you can. And so the expression of moral indignation is but personal evidence that unbelievers know this God in their heart of hearts. The problem of evil is not the Bible-believing Christian's problem after all. It turns out the problem of evil is the Bible-rejecting atheist problem. But wait, there's more. Bonson adds an essential fourth truth proposition that flows naturally from Scripture references like Psalm 7:11, God is a just judge. His fourth proposition, God is a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. And I didn't quote that exactly, but I said that in principle to the man outside of Planned Parenthood yesterday. That we, we can't always see, know, or understand why God has allowed a particular evil or even perhaps evil as a whole to exist, except for his glory. That's the the bigger principle. It's all for the glory of God. And that's what I said to him. Why is there a cosmos? Why is there earth in it? For the drama of redemption to play out to the glory of God. Everything else is details. And that is right. And that is good. And it's the fallen heart and the fallen mind that cannot comprehend that. And even in the details of that outworking in our own lives and experience, even believers can have a great difficulty seeing how this is good. This particular instance. But we can know and we must know that God is a just judge. Therefore, God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. When all four, Dr. Bonson says, 
When all four of these premises are maintained, there is no logical contradiction to be found, not even in an apparent one. It is precisely part of the Christian's walk of faith and growth and sanctification to draw Proposition 4 as the conclusions of Propositions 1 through 3. Again, Propositions 1 through 3, God is completely good. Two, God is completely powerful. Three, evil exists. Four, God is a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. It turns out that the problem of evil is not a logical difficulty after all. If God is a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists, as the Bible teaches, then its goodness and power are not challenged by the reality of evil events and things in human experience. The only logical problem which arises in connection with the discussion of evil is the unbeliever's philosophical inability to account for the objectivity of his moral judgments. So then, the Bible calls upon us to trust that God is a morally sufficient reason for the evil which can be found in this world, but it does not tell us what that sufficient reason is. The believer often struggles with this situation, walking by faith rather than by sight. The unbeliever, however, finds the situation intolerable for his pride, feelings, or rationality. He refuses to trust God, He will not believe that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists unless the unbeliever is given that reason for his own examination and assessment. To put it briefly, the unbeliever will not trust God unless God subordinates himself to the intellectual authority and moral evaluation of the unbeliever. What we find is that unbelievers who challenge the Christian faith end up reasoning in circles because they lack faith in God. They begin by arguing that evil is incompatible with the goodness and power of God when they are presented with a logically adequate and biblically supported solution to the problem of evil, i.e. God is a morally sufficient but undisclosed reason for the evil that exists. They refuse to accept it. Again, because of their lack of faith in God. They would rather be left unable to give an account of any moral judgment whatsoever about things being good or evil than to submit to the ultimate and unchallengeable moral authority of God. Dear saints, it turns out that the Bible was right all along. That professing atheists are not the logical intellects in the room or in the debate. In reality, they are the fools in the room and in every debate, an argument they make against God on moral grounds. As Psalm 14 says, I'm not insulting them, but believe the Bible. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. And yet they want to come with moral arguments against the existence of God. Moral arguments against the existence of the God of the Bible. Not just God in general, but the God of the Bible. If the God of the Bible is all good, as the Bible says, if he is all powerful, as the Bible says, how can there be evil? How? Because evil exists for a morally sufficient reason that God has not fully disclosed to us, although he has disclosed that it's all for his glory. Everything is for his glory. That is disclosed. And so we are not equipped intellectually. We are not equipped morally, we're not equipped logically to come and put God on trial. We are, as Scripture declares us, fools left to ourselves. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There's none who does good. We're corrupt right right where we sit. We don't have to do anything. We're corrupt. Our sin 
nature rules within us. But then we start to do things, and the things we do are abominable. They have done abominable works. And then even the good things we do, we find are tainted. As it says, there are none, there is none who does good. And so sin has radically corrupted us. We are totally depraved. It's left us foolish, not logical. And when you engage with atheists in biblical debate, bringing the biblical worldview to bear upon them, you will find that foolishness comes out. It abounds. As we found just yesterday. Now the goal is not to win the debate, by the way. The goal is to when the sinner to repentance and faith in Christ. I don't want to just win the debate. We were standing there not simply having a debate, but declaring the one true God and showing the fallacy of the man's arguments and assaults upon the one true God and ultimately upholding the word of God, the law of God throughout it all to show him his own sin and to show him that even though he rejects the God of truth and the truth of Scripture, If you'll just look in this mirror, God's true word, you'll see the reality in your own life. The wage of sin, which is death, it's upon you. Even as you say you love your sin, so you're not going to give it up. You love your sin. It's so great, so fantastic. Then you say, without using the word, but you say you're suicidal. And your sin's making you miserable. Well, according to your worldview, you should be happy in your sin. It should be just going wonderful. But the God of truth has declared that he has written his law upon your heart. And so even as you have tried to suppress the truth and you've descended well into absurdity, your God-given conscience, the truth of God, is crying out against you and you're miserable. And you evidence that the wage of sin is death in that misery. Oh, won't you repent? Come to Christ and be saved. Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The man we were talking to yesterday suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The university professors, generally speaking, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. All unbelievers, generally speaking, are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth and yet they suppress it. In unrighteousness. They have motive to suppress it. Verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now, the atheist always wants to be the wise one in the room. He's the wise guy. You're the idiot. We had a couple jog by the abortion clinic yesterday, and they had hand and arm signals and choice words for me. And I I encouraged them to stop and talk about their monotheistic hand signals, and they would not do so. They said something about your ignorance is astounding or whatever. And I said, stop and elaborate on that. Show me my ignorance, please. Please stop. Let us, let us converse together. 
You know, don't run off afraid. Come back. And they would not. Now, praise God, many times that has worked. Sometimes I'll try to challenge their pride. You know, don't be a coward. And that's like a hook for a lot of men. And it brings them back. And then you get to actually talk to them. Unfortunately, he was a coward. <laughs> and he kept going. But men who aren't cowards, or at least don't want to be cowards, they can't keep going. They've got to come back. It's a nice hook, just so you know. Hey, don't be a coward. We can talk. Anyway, he kept going. Many have come back. And what happens when they come back, 100% of the time, is the Word of God prevails. And they're foolish arguments, because that's what they are. Fall away. And so we, we can go with confidence before the wise university professor, before the, the wise mocker on the street, before the wise friend or family member who is wise and evil, but it's really just foolishness. There's no reason for us to get set back on our heels intellectually or morally when they throw the problem of evil or any other perceived problem before us. We are well-armed with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we're well-armed even with their own conscience. And by the end of our conversation with the man yesterday, his own conscience was agreeing with us. He was being humbled by the Word and his own conscience written on his heart. Which is why at the end of the conversation, he was asking about the name of our church, saying one day he might look us up, and thanking us for the conversation. Praise God for the privilege of watching his truth prevail. Did the man get saved on the spot? He did not. And he even argued that we can't, we can't make him repent and confess Christ as Lord. And we said, you're right, but God can. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And what you meant for evil, coming over to mock and deride and rail against God and make fools of us, God, if you're numbered amongst his elect, will work for your infinite and eternal good. And the fact that you've stuck around and talked to us this long gives me much hope to that end. And so we're not just debating. We're not just looking to win a debate. We're looking to win them to Christ. They might come to repentance and faith and be saved from the wage of sin, which is death now and death eternally under the judgment of God. And remember that Romans 1 is true. They know God. And they suppress that knowledge of God in unrighteousness. Romans 2 is true. The law of God is written on their conscience. And they're working hard to suppress it. Their conscience is agreeing with you when you're declaring God's law. And remember this. God's law is perfect converting the soul. It's perfect. Unleash it. The atheist double-minded suppression of truth is represented well by Richard Dawkins. And then he complains of vast amounts of suffering and yet simultaneously says there is no evil. Vast amounts of suffering. Bad. There is no evil. What? Double-minded. That's what happens. You descend into foolishness. And this is Richard Dawkins. Considered a pretty smart guy, right? Oh, yeah. You can't logically have it both ways. Even the most intelligent, studied, famous, and followed atheist in the world aren't the intellects in the room. You will see that they're in fact the biggest fools of all. I'm not name-calling. I'm agreeing with Psalm 14.1 and Romans 1, and Richard Dawkins himself is providing the hearty amen. Dawkins says God is evil. Quote, 
This is Dawkins. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindicative, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow. If ever there was a blasphemous statement, that was it. That's Richard Dawkins. Now, how many judgments did he make there? How many moral judgments did he just lay down against God? And look down at his feet. What is he standing on? Thin air. So my response to Richard might be, are any of those things wrong? And on what foundation would they be wrong? What is your objective moral foundation for any of those moral positions that you just threw against God? And every moral standard that you're pointing to and trying to say God is infringing upon every moral standard is just a reflection of the reality that you are created in God's image. And that you know there is good and evil, right and wrong, truth and error. And so you're just testifying to God's truthfulness and God's goodness in the ultimate sense, Mr. Dawkins. Dawkins simultaneously says evil is too overwhelmingly terrible to even contemplate, but there is no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. In his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, Richard Dawkins says this, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If ever there is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no desire no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now that is a colossal contradiction in one paragraph that summarizes his entire worldview. Everything is terrible because there's so much suffering, both amongst the animals and mankind. There's so much suffering. It's just overwhelming. It's beyond comprehension. And yet there is no good or evil or any rhyme or reason to anything. So what does the suffering matter if there's no good? Well, non-suffering isn't good. So why are you devaluing and resenting suffering so much? If there's no evil, then how are these so-called atrocities being carried out by parasites within animals and being carried out by animals eating other animals and being carried out when humans hurt other humans, how are, are these such moral atrocities if there is no good or evil? You see that even the wisest of the atheists are but fools before a holy God. Having rejected the God of truth, the God who is a just judge, they can make no right judgments. Now they still make all sorts of judgments, mostly against God. And in that, they reveal 
that they are created in God's image and that they can't escape that reality. And so our job is to uphold the word of God, to uphold Psalm 711. God is a just judge and not to give an inch, to not let them put God in the judgment seat, but say, no, 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 you're wrong. You're in the judgment seat. And every judgment you make is actually judging you, not God. Every atheistic judgment against God that you make is actually judging you because you're testifying with your own mouth that there is truth, that there is good, that there is evil. But without God, you can't justify any of those judgments, which is why you then, at the end of your paragraph, say there is no good, there is no evil. You've descended into the madness of unbelief, into atheistic absurdity. So in reality, the truth is that atheism is a faith system built on blind trust in naturalism, that there is no supernatural materialism. There is only uncreated material universe, big bang cosmology, that everything came from a bang, a cosmos without a creator, matter without a maker, matter that doesn't matter because as Dawkins says, without the God of Genesis 1-1, there is no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pigless indifference. So why have you written all these books screeching against God, Dawkins? If there's no evil and no good, only blind, pitiless indifference, why do you keep writing these books to screech against God? Darwinian evolution, this is their faith. Naturalism, materialism, Big Bang cosmology, Darwinian evolution, life without a life giver, design without a designer, information without an information giver. In reality, the truth is, that the evil religion of atheism and the evil atheist ideologies of fascism and communism are responsible for the murder of more than 150 million people in the 20th century alone. We could go a step further and argue that the atheistic worldview is largely responsible for the bloody genocidal slaughter of 1.6 billion unborn human beings since 1980. This worldview, this unbiblical worldview, leads to vast suffering and mass murder. May you and I embrace firmly the truth of Scripture that God is a just judge and be ready to wield that truth effectively, whether we're outside of a Planned Parenthood or in a classroom or in a holiday party at work where someone wants to start throwing bombs against God, launching their moralistic arguments against God. That is an opportunity That's nothing to fear. That's a door they just opened. May we study to show ourselves approved and be ready to wield the Word of God as a sword of the Spirit effectively that we might call these precious men and women to repentance and faith in Christ. Being valiant warriors, not fearful. Oh no, the atheist! And their foolish atheistic arguments. I only have the God of all truth and the sword of the Spirit. What kind of soldier is that? That's the kind of soldier that that David came across when he went to bring sandwiches to his brothers on the field of battle. And they were there quaking before Goliath. and, And David was shocked. What are we doing? You are the Lord's army. We can't stand quaking before this uncircumcised Philistine. Let me go. We all are equipped to be just like David, valiant 
for the day of battle and unafraid of Goliath, atheist, and his foolish arguments. If we're ignorant of the scriptures, we may see Goliath's great sword as this vast threat. It's a fool's sword. It can do you no harm. Go forth and fight a good fight for the glory of God and the redemption of sinners. Holding fast to this one little rock in your sling, God is a just judge. Let's pray.